listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2015. Today's episode is titled Walking in Financial Freedom. What do people mean when they say, it's not personal, it's just business? A pedestrian view of this saying could be that a business decision was made based on financial consideration over relationship. In other words, business is about making money and relationships are subordinated to this objective. Leading an organization is first and foremost an exercise in stewardship. The real owner of the organization and all assets of the organization is the master. Human stakeholders are simply stewards. Stewards are required to faithfully steward the organization according to the will and ways of the master. It's not personal, it's just business, or what's in it for me are inappropriate attitudes for stewards to embrace. The only valid question for stewards in any situation is, what's in it for the master? This perspective provides freedom from mammon worship and facilitates stewardship aligned with the will and ways of the master. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Preparation for Success, Walking in Financial Freedom. So let's begin in prayer and then we'll begin our presentation. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for hunger and thirst on the part of people to know you more deeply, more profoundly, to go deeper into the truth of your word and to learn to live according to your will and your ways. So, Father, give us much grace as we share, as we talk, as we learn together to go deeper with you. And may the power of your word through the empowerment of your spirit transform us to bring us into more alignment with you so that we may be your servants and bear fruit that you value and bring, bring glory to your name. So give us grace as we talk and share in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I want to welcome you to the webinar, Walking in Financial Freedom. And we're going to talk about this material in five basic sections. Um, this is a, a bit of a challenge to try to take scriptural teaching on financial management uh, and condense it down into a, a 60 or 70 minute presentation. Uh, I've been studying finances in, from a biblical worldview for a number of years uh, and have seen the vast uh, numbers of texts in scripture that deal with it and it is vast. Uh, many, many of Jesus's parables deal, dealt with money. There is it just it, many, many texts in the Old Testament as well as the New that deal with money. So condensing and synthesizing this teaching down into some seminal ideas is indeed challenging. And I make no claim that I have done a great job. I've done the best job I know how to do. So I will give you what I see about the seminal ideas about money from Scripture. So what we'll do today is we'll start out talking about the deceptions and three key deceptions that are common, uh, I find, in the culture, and I find it in, among Christians as well. In fact, I find, um, in my experience, uh, literally all over the world, wherever I go and whatever context I'm in, I have found that uh, the Christian community doesn't think largely much different from the culture. Uh, it is an exceptional person among the Christians who does think differently, but the common person I run into thinks pretty much like the world. So we need to recognize this this uh, this propensity we have to think, you know, non-biblically on this matter, and really be willing to confront it and address it. So we'll try to deal with at least three of these deceptions today. 
Then we're going to talk about stewardship. And you see I've got a Greek word here, oikos is the word. Uh, and that's one of the key elements, probably the seminal idea you have to grab a hold of and really begin to, to understand if you're going to ever view and use money correctly. Otherwise, you will be stuck in worldly patterns that will not bless you in the long run. We'll talk about the distinction between wealth and riches and uh, what scripture has to say about both and which is more important. And I think you probably know the answer to that, but we'll give you more specifics about that. We'll talk about money. Arguably, money is uh, one of the greatest of the financial assets there. It's the one that's most common to us. We all deal with it. And we'll talk about what it is, what it isn't, and how to view it and what its purpose really is. And then we'll talk about the five uses of money. And I've got the phrase closed circle here. Uh, and that's a reference to a, a, a metaphor that's used and has been used in the business leadership school to talk about finances. The idea of the closed circle is that everything in the circle is what it is you need to live on. And everything outside the circle is excess. And while I don't think this particular model is, is ideal, uh, since it's been used, I'm going to refer to it and try to give you a, a hopefully an updated, a little more modified way to understand it. And one of the things that's important to understand about the closed circle is that everything within the closed circle and outside the closed circle has been given to you for a purpose. God is very purposeful, and he wants you to steward it accordingly. So we want to be very clear on that. And the five uses of money will give you ways to define the closed circle and now hopefully ways to better steward uh, the resources God puts in your hands. So these are the five sections we'll go into. And like I said, we will attempt to get this done within about an hour from now. So we'll have time for our Q&A there at the end. Well, let's get into the first section here, which is about worldly wisdom. And my, my point here is that worldly wisdom is deceptive. And I want to talk about three, three specific areas where we are deceived by worldly wisdom. Success, security, and significance. So we'll address those real quickly here. First of all, worldly wisdom assumes that money equals success. If I were to ask you or able to interact with you, which I realize I'm not, uh, if the richest men in the world are a success, men like Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett, uh, Carlos Slim, these are three, I think probably right now, the three richest men in the world in terms of just financial assets. If I were to ask you if they were a success and you were honest with me, you would probably say yes. Now, I know some of you know the answer to that, so you, would, you might be denying that you would say yes, but if you were brutally honest, it's really hard to say they're not a success because it looks like they're a success. I mean, they have all this money and they can do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it, wherever they want to do it. It seems like they just have no boundaries at all. The rest of us feel like we have boundaries, financial boundaries. We always feel like there's not enough. We can't do this. We can't do that. Well, of course, that's part of the deception of money. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. The point here is that we readily, if we're brutally honest, we readily assume money is success, and that is worldly thinking. So let's look at biblical thinking, which is obviously the opposite, that money is not equal to success. And I picked a text out of Psalm 52 
to illustrate this. I could have also picked Psalm 73, which is a very clear illustration of this as well. But I thought Psalm 52 was very poignant here in verses 5, 6, and 7. It says here, God shall destroy you. He's talking about Doeg, the Edomite, forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. This sounds like judgment. The righteous shall also see and fear. In other words, other people are going to watch this and they're going to learn lessons and shall laugh at him saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. You see, that's what can happen so easily with money is when you get it, it emboldens you in rebellion against God. And we're all born in rebellion against God. And the only way we ever get delivered from that is through the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us through regeneration and bringing us to saving faith in Christ. So the warning here is to recognize that money is not success. Money, in fact, can be a setup for judgment. Whenever you see anyone that has financial assets at any level, particularly at an abundant level, what you have is first and foremost provision to do God's will. And if they don't choose to do God's will, then that money becomes a setup for judgment. And that's exactly what Psalm 73 illustrates. It's what this Psalm 52 is illustrating this morning. So I want to give you the, what I think is the correct definition of success, the biblical definition of success, and that success is obedience to the will and ways of God. Jesus said in John 17, 4, in his great high priestly prayer, before he died, before the end of his life, he had spent now 33 years on earth. He had been a very dutiful son. He had entered his family business at age 12, become an apprentice carpenter, and then became a full-blown carpenter, full master carpenter. In fact, in one text, it says he was the carpenter, which suggests that he became an outstanding carpenter. And he was a carpenter for about 18 years. And a carpenter in those days, as best we can tell, was, was like a general contractor today. He did lots of things. He didn't just work with wood, he, but he did lots of things. He probably made boats and made uh, all kinds of furniture for homes and uh, probably made plows and for, things, for the workplace, just all kinds of things. And so he did that for 18 years. And then he spent three years as an itinerant teacher. All of these things that he did, I think, were contemplated when he made this comment, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. You see, we've been put here to work. Jesus was put here to work. Now, his greatest work, arguably, was the cross. But all the work that preceded the cross was part of his work. And he had, was assigned by God to do that specific work in that place at that time with those people. And Jesus said, I completed it and I brought you glory in the process. So this to me is success. There can be no greater success than truly recognizing the eternal significance of our lives and living in light of eternity. So I wanna encourage you, you must, you must get clear on what it is to walk in the will and ways of God. The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen only mode.
Now, the next thing I want to bring up is the reality of security. Worldly wisdom says that money equal to security. And if money equals security, then you think all I need is, is money to handle whatever problems that may be coming along. Well, that is deception. Money is not equal security. And why is that? I mean, it seems like if you have money, you could fi fix any problems you have, you would feel very secure. But that is not, again, that is not reality. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 captures this when Jesus is writing this letter to the Laodicean church, and he is articulating to them a reality. And that is, you think that money is security. He's, the, the text says, because you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Do you not know that you are, in fact, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Now, that's a startling comment there. You're talking to people that are wealthy, people that have plenty of resources. Can you imagine yourself talking to a wealthy person? Picture the most wealthy person you know, and can you imagine coming up and saying something like this to them? Well, I know that you think you're wealthy, and I know that you don't think you need anything because your wealth can buy whatever you need, but the reality is you're deceived. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what does wretched mean? Well, wretched means you are always enduring trials. There's all kinds of challenges and problems coming at you. Miserable means you are to be pitied. Poor means that you have been reduced to beggary. Blind means you can't see reality well. And naked means that everybody can see your failures. Everybody can see your deception. Everybody can see that you're not what you claim to be. Well, this is a very startling thing for Jesus to say. In fact, some of us would think, wow, this, uh, this is not very nice at all. Uh, but Jesus was not one to worry about being nice so much. He was more worried about being correct and being true and being honest with reality and most of all being lined with, lined up with the Father. So again, we have biblical wisdom goes contrary to worldly wisdom. Money is not security. Security, the only security there is, is in Christ. Money is simply a tool, and we'll talk more about that reality as we go along. Well, the third deception that is very common, at least in my experience, is the assumption that worldly wisdom says that money equals significance. Money equals significance. Now, we all in inherently want to be significant. It's just amazing how we all, we come into this world and we start searching for something we should do to make a name for ourselves. It's just, it's uncanny how people want to be famous. They want to be known. They want to be powerful. They want to be successful. These are biases that God has built in human beings. You know, from a pure naturalistic perspective, uh, those, there's no reason for those biases to be there. But see, naturalism doesn't explain reality. The only thing that really explains reality robustly is a biblical worldview. And scripture tells us God made man to work and to be his agents on earth. So there is wiring in us that tells us that we, we need to work and we need to go out and do things 
And of course, what's happened is because of the fall of man, we tend to distort the doing and we wind up doing things that we want to do or doing things that tickle our fleshly desires instead of doing the things that God has created us to do. So we, we create our own significance in a sense, but we've got to learn how to really be significant. And scripture tells us very clearly how this works. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is a great example of this. The text says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. Or say to the poor man, You stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brother, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So you can see from this text that there was a propensity on the part of the Christian community to show favoritism to those who were wealthy and to those who didn't have wealth, to, sh to shun them and treat them as mere servants. And what James is saying here is this is out of order. This is not consistent with God because money does not equal significance. Money doesn't equal success. Money doesn't equal security. So we've got to get very clear that this is worldly thinking. The reality is the people that God is going to exalt and he's going to declare significant are those who inherit his kingdom. Those who are rich in faith, those are people that are significant to God. And God is the one, the master and the controller of eternity. And ultimately, our life here on earth is a very short period of existence. And we will all live eternally. The question is, will we live with the Lord or will we live in eternity in the lake of fire? Now, that, that to me is just such a sobering reality that it's a no-brainer. Why would I want to do anything other than turn to the Lord? Anything else is going to lead to eternal destruction, eternal judgment. So real wealth comes to those who turn to the Lord, who are heirs of the kingdom. Those are people that are not focused on money. They're focused on obedience to God. So significance has to do with being aligned with God. Security has to do with being aligned with God. Success has to do with being aligned with God. So these are the real definitions of, of these very challenging terms that are commonly misunderstood today. What's really important to God is him and his will, his ways, and his name being glorified. Well, let's go on to the stewardship principle. This, uh, this idea of stewardship arguably is the most seminal idea that you must understand if you're going to have a biblical view of money. If you don't understand stewardship, you will always be distorted in some way in terms of your perspective and how you see money. You will view money as yours. You will think it's up to you to decide how you want to spend it and how you want to use it. And you will think that it's up to you to define your standard of living because you will not be thinking properly as a steward. So the first aspect we have to get to with stewardship is recognize that all resources belong to the Lord. 
So we have, here's some text to consider out of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. This is God speaking. And the cattle on a thousand hills. And then 1 Kings 20, verse 3. Your silver and your gold are mine. The same text is repeated in Haggai 2.8 where God is making the point, I created it all, I own it all, it's mine, it's not yours. And so you get clear on that, you realize, wow, whatever it is that I have has been given to me. I have nothing from that I have I've produced myself. Now someone will raise their hand and object and say, wait a minute, you know, I went out and I worked hard and I earned my paycheck. Yes, you did. You went out and worked hard and you earned your paycheck. But who gave you the ability to do that? Who gave you the opportunity to do that? Who gave you the favor to do that? You see, ultimately, everything that you have, even though it looks like you earned it, it's all been given to you by the master. You are simply a steward. So another expression of this reality is found in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. I'm just going to read those three verses. They're the most relevant to our comment here. But this whole text, Paul is, is issuing a defense uh, to this immature body of believers at Corinth who are being challenged by false apostles who are critiquing Paul. And so Paul and his associates are being, uh, being basically judged by these false apostles, and this young church is, does not have the skill and ability to really discern reality. So Paul is having to lay out his defense of the truthfulness and the veracity of his role as an apostle. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the mysteries of God are, is a very broad term. Uh, for Paul, it's mainly the mystery about Christ, and we apply that to us today. It's mysteries about all of God's universe, including Christ, as we discover and un unfold the technologies and the wonders of God's universe and bring these under the mastery of mankind to help us rule God's creation. So stewards are involved in God's creation, doing what he's put us here to do. So all of us have mysteries of God, just like Paul and his followers and his associates had mysteries of God. And we're all stewards of these mysteries that God gives to us. Moreover, it is required in stewards that, that one be found faithful. So the key trait of a steward is faithfulness. Then verse 7 says, For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, what do you have that God hasn't given to you? You know, your, your talents, your treasure, your time, your life, your job opportunities, your favor, even the resources in your hand. All of these God has given to you. Well, if that's true, then why do you boast as if that's not true? So he's critiquing them and saying, you need to start thinking like stewards. This is critical it, for all of life, and particularly if you're going to understand money correctly. Now, one of the implications of stewardship is that the master gets to set the standard of living for the stewards. Now, that can be a very challenging thought for most of us, because we like to think we get to define our standard of living. In fact, in America, that is a very common idea, that each person gets to define their own standard of living. 
Well, that's not a biblical idea. And I want to just illustrate that with, with Jesus, his very life. If anyone could have self-defined their standard of living, Jesus could have. And during his final phase of life on earth, when he was an itinerant teacher, he lived off the charity of others. So indeed, God the Father set his standard of living. So look at Luke chapter 8, verse 3. It says, these women were helping to support them, that is Jesus and the 12, out of their own means. This is a reference to Jesus' last uh, phrase on earth, his itinerant teaching phase, and he's got these women following him and helping to support him out of their own means. So stewards recognize that the master sets their standard of living. That's not something you, it's been delegated to you. It's something that is directed and dictated to you by the Father. And one of the ways he directs it to you and dictates it to you is that he assigns you a specific work assignment. And that specific work assignment in the culture you're in generally commands a certain standard of living. And that, that standard of living is not done independent of God. God is involved in that. It's not human beings. Human beings may think they decide those things, but human beings are easily deceived. God is engaged in setting standards of living even when we don't recognize it and see it clearly. Uh, just an ex example of this reality, I was at a, a function last night and a lady came up to me and said, well, I've got, uh, I need to ask you a question. I said, okay. She said, I've got this uh, two or three things in my heart I really feel like I want to do. And um, the problem is they don't make, they don't pay much money. And I've got an opportunity over here where I can make a lot more money, but I'm really not very passionate about it. What should I do? And of course, my response to her is, look, God pays for what he orders. He funds his will. So what you need to do is pursue the things God's put in your heart. And you probably need to do it with a community of believers who understands the principles of stewardship and money correctly and seek the Lord together. And he will probably show you through the community, you know, what it is he's, what he wants you, know, wants you to do and confirm the calling that you think you have. So this is a great example of how we've got to be open to let the master set the standard of living based on the calling he's assigned to us. That is a big one here. That's one we really don't like. It's one we would prefer not to be true. We would like to be in charge of that and be able to decide where we live, you know, what, where we vacation, what car we drive, what clothes, you know, we, we wear, and where our kids go to school, and all the other things that we think we decide all the time. But God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are the ones that set that for us. And we've got to be submitted to that. And that's the process of being a good steward. Now, one other principle of stewardship here, uh, which I think is just a key principle as well, is the understanding of sowing and reaping, or giving and receiving. Galatians 6, 7, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for a man reaps what he sows. This is a reality, and we know this very easily. Look at the uh, just how a farmer works. If a farmer wants to uh, wants to produce potatoes, he has, to pr he has to sow potato seeds. If you want to produce corn, you have to sow corn seed. So you reap what you sow. Reproduction after kind is a basic principle that God put in his universe. Look at Genesis 1. You will see that. 
And so as we recognize that's how God works, we have to be uh, recognized that as we are faithfully stewarding what gives us, God gives us, we are sowing that, and what will come from that will be a reaping. We will reap spiritual blessings as well as physical blessings. So we go out and sow hard work in whatever we're called to do, and we will reap the wages of the worker. Same way, if we go out and we sow into our children, we sow faithfully in our children, then we will, we will see the reward of that over time. Now, that's a maxim. There are obviously clearly exceptions to that, and sometimes it takes a long time for things to show up. But we need to know that God works on this key principle of sowing and reaping. Another example of this principle is Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This, uh, this is a text that I believe you could, you could uh, translate it a little differently and still wind up with the same thing. In fact, an even more clear understanding of it. If you said, seek first his will, that would be his kingdom where he rules, and his ways, that's his righteousness, his ways are always righteous, ways are the ways that he wants his will to be executed, then he says all of your, your needs will be taken care of. In fact, the context of this verse is talking about physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, those kinds of things. So this is a promise here, sowing and reaping. We sow alignment with God, with his will and his ways, and we will reap provision for us to live to be able to be faithful stewards. So sowing and reaping, a key principle of stewardship. Now let's move on to wealth and riches. And I just want to briefly make a distinction here. Um, scripture does not really uh, make the distinction between wealth and riches. It uses the term wealth and riches interchangeably. But there two, do appear to be two categories of wealth and riches in Scripture. And because of that, some people, some teachers, in an attempt to try to distinguish these two categories, have chosen to call tangible assets riches and intangible assets wealth. So I'm going to use that distinction simply because it's, it's fairly easy and simple. But just know this, when you read Scripture, you'll have to ask yourself when you see the word wealth or riches, which is he talking about? And look at the context carefully to try to discern, is he talking about tangible assets or intangible assets. So tangible assets are pretty simple for us. We're all familiar with these things. We have things like real estate, uh, people, uh, gold and silver, livestock, political, economic, and family favor. And here's some text beside here to illustrate these points. Uh, the Genesis 15, 1, through 7, 1 and 7 illustrates real estate as a wealth, is a part of the riches that we have. People are manpower, Genesis 15 verses 1 and 5, gold and silver, Genesis 13.2, livestock, Genesis 13.2, and then political, economic, and family favor, Deuteronomy 28. So these are just simple illustrations that readily are obvious to just about everybody, but sadly, most people, particularly the world, would think this is it. This is the definition of wealth and riches, and they don't understand intangible assets at all. So we're going to go to that next, but first I want to just make one other quick point here since I brought up Deuteronomy 28. And Deuteronomy 28 has, has a couple of maxims in it that we need to be aware of relative to money. Uh, the first maxim is that obedience leads to blessing, and the second maxim is disobedience leads to judgment. 
And that's very clear in Deuteronomy 28, as you read through there, when God is instructing the Israelites what he will do if they obey him, which is he will protect them politically, he will protect their families, and their businesses will prosper. So they will be, they will have everything in the natural that anybody would want. You know, just, it would be a life of ease and comfort and relatively pain-free. What a wonderful gift that would be. Now, obviously, these are maxims, and maxims are things that are generally true, which means there can be exceptions. Likewise, the disobedience in that same text, Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you don't obey me, here's what's going to happen. You know, I will not protect you politically. I will not protect your families, and I will not protect your businesses. In other words, they'll be wide open for, for rav being ravaged by other people, other nations and disease and all kinds of blight and issues. So this is a very stout, you know, warning. You see the same thing in Psalm 1, where what's blessed is alignment with God and what's not blessed is disobedience. Now, we do have the exception of Psalm 73, because I said this was maxims, there are exceptions. Psalm 73 paints a picture of people who are living in rebellion against God, open, flagrant rebellion against God, and yet they seem to be have lives of comfort and ease and plenty of money. And what Psalm 73 shows us is the reality that, that these are people that God has given provision to. They have not used it properly. Their, their rebellion against God has been emboldened. And so God now uses that money as a setup for judgment. So that's an exception. It looks like they've been blessed, but in reality, they have not been blessed. So these are just simple principles that we need to follow. Now, don't use these things with such rigidity that you are making demands on God. That is not the way these are being used. I see people grab a hold of these things and, and say, well, I'm obeying God. He has to bless me. That is not the way God works. These are general principles. They're, they're generally true. They're always exceptions. God has a universe going. He has a plan going. He has each one of us here for a purpose. And sometimes his purpose involves things that, that look contrary to this. For example, one aspect of blessing is a long life. Well, if there was anyone that was obedient that did not have a long life, it was Jesus. So he's an exception to the maxim. Or what about the fact that Jesus was living off the charity of women at the end of his life? If anybody was obedient and should have led to financial prosperity, Jesus should have been the richest man that ever lived. He should have lived at an incredibly high standard of living. But no, he lived very modestly because the Father assigned him a very modest standard of living. Now, this does not mean that God has called us all to a vow of poverty. That's not what the text is saying. It's simply saying God sovereignly chooses your standard of living, and what he wants you to do is obey him, and that releases the blessings to what God has called you to do at whatever standard of living he's assigned to you. And if you don't obey him, there will be consequences for that. So that's the point of this, this particular maxim here. I just want to make that clear. Now let me move on to uh, the, the wealth side, which is the intangible assets. These are sometimes called wealth as opposed to riches, which would be a reference to the tangible. Remember, we're just making a distinction that Scripture makes. It doesn't use these words quite the way that I'm using them, 
but we're just trying to use these words today to illustrate this distinction. Intangible assets are assets that are more valuable than tangible assets. And a text to look at here to see that would be a text like Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. That would be a wonderful text to look at. That's a text that's dealing with retirement, where man, man builds up assets and decides to retire and live off his assets, eat, drink, and be merry, and have a great time, a life of ease and that kind of thing. And the Lord comes and judges him that night and says, you fool. And a fool is a person who doesn't understand. He's saying, you don't understand. There are two things you've done wrong. First of all, you didn't prepare any spiritual sons. There's no one prepared to steward the resources I put into your hands. So that's the first thing you did wrong. Secondly, you didn't recognize what I really valued. And what I really value is intangible assets. And I give you tangible assets to trade up, to trade for intangible assets. So that's a great illustration of how intangible assets are more valuable than tangible. And then I've given here on your slide a list of these um, tangible assets or intangible assets that are more valuable than tangible. And some references here. And if you look at these various references, you will see they specifically say these traits are more valuable than gold or silver. So let's just take, uh, for example, the third one here. It says instruction. That is a, a, someone who is teachable, someone who will learn. That's more valuable than silver or gold. Listen to what Proverbs 8.10 says. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. In other words, if you've got a choice between being teachable and having money, take teachability over money any day. Or how about wisdom? In uh, Proverbs 8, verses 10 through 11, receive my instruction and not silver, and not acknowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot compare with her. That is with wisdom. Wisdom is supreme. And then there are many others, reputation, respect, godliness with contentment, and genuine faith. So you've got all these different intangible assets here that the scripture tells us are more valuable more valuable than any tangible wealth. So we need to learn as stewards to trade up. We trade the tangible for the intangible in ourselves and in the lives of others, those that we're discipling. That should always be our, our, our desire is to use resources to trade up. All right, well, let's go on to money. And we want to talk about money as a medium of exchange and valuation that reflects division of labor. You see, the way God works is that whether we like it or not, we have to deal with money. There are many times I wish that I didn't have to deal with money. I wish that I could just do what I do and not charge anybody anything. That would be my, my desire. The, the challenge, though, is I have to pay my bills like everybody else because people don't give me free cars and free houses and free utilities and free food and free clothes and free insurance. They don't do that. I have to pay all those bills like everybody else. So I have to charge for my services. So we have to have a way then for, you know, exchanging, you know, our units of work. And that's what money represents. It represents units of work. So as we work and we earn this medium exchange, which we call money, then we're able to use that to purchase things that we could not self-produce. The only reason you need money is because you have things that you need that you can't self-produce. 
So you need money to be able to purchase those things. And that's the way God made his universe to work. Division of labor is an inherent reality of the universe. And we even see division of labor in the Godhead. The Father is the planner. The Son is the incarnator. And the Holy Spirit is the empowerer. So there's a division of labor even in God. But we know in us as human beings, as God has made us, there is a division of labor. We each have different gifts, different talents, different callings. We, have different, we live in different places, different times, different assignments. We have all these differences. And to do the various things we're called to do, we need other people to help us. No one can do their calling in a vacuum. They have to be in a context. So money is a medium of exchange that facilitates what God has called us to do. The vision of labor is a reality of God's universe. So in this particular text in Deuteronomy 14, what we have here is an example of how God put this reality in, into play. In the Israelite nation, there were three ties. That is, while Israelite was a monarchy. Once it became, excuse me, became, was a theocracy. Once it became a monarchy, there were five ties. But prior to the monarchy, when it was a theocracy, that was their government, God was ruling, there were three ties. Two were yearly, once was every three years. So the every three-year tithe was a tithe of benevolence for the poor. The annual tithes were first to the priests, and secondly, the people ate a tithe. And what the people were charged to do was to go and take a tenth of what they produced and go to a place where the Lord shows his name to abide, and they were to eat the tithe there. And that was to remind them to hopefully keep them always walking with God, walking in obedience to God. It's to intended to try to keep them lined up with God. That was the point. Well, many times they would live a long way away from where the Lord's name was abiding. And so it would be hard for them to, to transport their tithe there. So they were given permission to sell their tithe wherever they were, convert that to currency, and then go to the place where the Lord's name was abided, usually Jerusalem, and there they could buy something, and they like grain or birds, whatever. They were given the freedom to buy whatever they wanted, and then they would consume it there at the Lord's in the Lord's presence. And the purpose again is devotion and alignment with God. So that's how money was to be used in that case. So it's an example of money as a medium of exchange. It also is a way to value things. You value the labor that you put in to your work. And so this is one of the first ways that we use money. Now, another way that money is used is money is a training tool. It is a training tool. This is Luke 19, verses 11 and 17. This is the story of the parable of the minus, which I think is one of the clearest stories we have in Scripture of God's intent and purpose for money. And in this particular parable, uh, you have a landowner who is giving 10 servants each a mina, and we don't know exactly how much that represented, perhaps uh, three or four months worth of wages, something like that. So they were given this mina, and they were told to pragmatiomai. That is the Greek word that was used there, referencing to that mina. Now, the word pragmatiomai, you can hear immediately the word pragmatic in that, and it literally meant in the Greek language, pragmatiomai meant to conduct business. So they were charged to conduct business, buy and sell and trade and do things with that, invest that, that mina, and, and God expects increase. He expects us to have a profit. He expects our business endeavors to be profitable. 
That's part of what he wants us to do. So he comes back now in this parable and how he's going to hold his various servants accountable. So here's what, first when he comes to, he says, what, you know, basically what you do with my mina? He says, well, your mina has earned 10 more. And he says, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful and little, yet you have authority over 10 cities. The point here is the stewardship of a little bit of money led to the promotion you know, out of the marketplace into political power, a lot of political power, authority over 10 cities. I mean, it looks like, wow, that is a huge jump. Well, because when you properly steward money, it is a powerful training tool because it is very challenging to steward money correctly. It's so easy to abuse money and misuse it. So money is given to us to train us. And many of us spent a large part of our lives learning lessons of stewardship, learning how to properly discern the will of God and use money to line up with God, help us line up with God, help others line up with God. Money is a training tool. Let me go on to the next point. Money is a tool of and provision for alignment with the will and ways of God. And I mentioned this text earlier, Matthew 6, 33, and offered the idea that the kingdom of God here in this text is a reference to the will of God and righteousness is a reference to the ways of God. So seek first the kingdom of God, that is the will of God, and his righteousness, the ways of God, and all these things will be added to you. You see, as we focus on alignment with the will and ways of God, that's our job. There's provision for us to do that. And so one of the corollaries of this reality is my thesis that there's no such thing as money problems. The only problems are alignment problems. When I line up with God properly, there's provision. So when someone comes to me and says, you know, I need money, I know immediately, no, they don't need money, they need alignment. Now, if I see a heart to line up with God and they want me to help them and I feel called to help them, I may use money as a tool to facilitate that. But what I'm not interested in doing is just giving them money because they think they need money. Most likely that is deception. And we had a situation not too long ago at our church where this, there's one lady that I happened to spend a little time with uh, was thought she had lots of money problems. And I tried to encourage her to know she had alignment problems, which she was not interested in hearing. And so she immediately rejected me and she went to one of the pastors. And I don't think that pastor recognized that I'd interacted with this lady. And so he was able to go and get some benevolence for her. And then she comes once she calls him one evening and demands to see him the next day. And, and she doesn't know that, that he actually has a check, benevolence check in his desk drawer for her. And she comes into his office and she rants and raves for raves for a while about, all of her problems and why the church is not helping her and da, 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 da. And so finally he pulls the check out of the door and gives it to her. And as soon as she gets that check, she's out of there. And I talked to the pastor afterwards and I said, do you understand what really happened there? I said, all we did was enable her in her sin. She's living in rebellion against God, out of line with God, rejecting the uh, counsel to get aligned with God, rejecting the help we're trying to really give her but we give her money, she'll take her money, and she'll continue in her rebellion. So we did not help her. 
We did not bless her. That's not the correct way to use money. The correct way to use money is to use money to help those that are humbly seeking to line up with God. That is the correct way to use it. So this is part of learning how to properly give. It's learning how to recognize what God is doing and get lined up with what he's doing and help others get lined up with what he's doing. Money's a tool of and provision for alignment with the will and ways of God. Then we have the reality that money is a temporal tool. That is, it's a temporal tool to facilitate the process of sanctification. And this is a text out of 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12. And I, I, I'm running a little short on time, so I'm not going to be able to go into this in depth. But let me just point you to this text. And you'll notice uh, toward the end of this text, I've underlined some, some words here. Because this text is basically admonishing us not to give in to worldly way of thinking about money, which is all driven by greed. It's all driven by narcissism and its lack of contentment. And what we need to embrace is the reality that godliness with, with contentment is great gain. That's something that you can't buy with money. People that pursue money, that worship money, are never content. But people who are truly godly are very content because they recognize who their provider is. And so part of our responsibility in fighting the temptation to give in to the worship of money and to greed and narcissistic thinking about money is we have to step into certain things. We have to flee worldly thinking. We have to pursue righteousness. And that looks like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. This word for gentleness actually is a word for meekness, and meekness means to believe that God is always working good in every situation. That's what a, a meek person is. We're also supposed, supposed to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life, which means we validate that we really do know the Lord by virtue of fighting the battle against worshiping money. Money is a temporal tool to, to be used by God to change us, to sanctify us. And so this is an example of going to the spiritual gym. And you're going to the spiritual gym to fight the temptation to get fat in thinking that money is a solution to your problems. Money is not the solution. The Lord is the solution. Godly thinking is the solution. So money is a tool to drive us to a spiritual workout so we can grow and mature. Now behind Money is always a mammon spirit. And the mammon spirit is the spirit of the enemy that's trying to make us worship money. And money, worshiping money seems to be the default of everyone. I think when we come out of the womb, we have, we're so biased with sin that we immediately worship money very easily and readily, and we do not worship God. And I find many people even who profess today to claim to worship God, when I start looking at their lives, and seeing how they, they utilize money, it looks more like mammon worship to me than the worship of God. And there's a reality in God's universe. There is a principle in play here. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or else you or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now that word, you cannot serve, does not mean you don't have permission to. It means you do not have the power to. You don't have the ability to worship God in money. You will do one or the other, period. They are mutually exclusive. That's why he says you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, 
or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. They're, 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 it's a binary decision. It's either this way or that way. It can't be both. That's not an option. And so the mammon spirit works overtime, you know, luring us into worshiping mammon. And even one of the common things that I see today is people rationalize the worship of mammon by claiming that they want to be wealthy so they can contribute to the work of the Lord or the kingdom causes. So they, they put a Christian wrapper around it as if that sanctifies their desire to be wealthy. You know, our desire needs not to be wealthy in tangible resources. Our desire should be wealthy in intangible resources. Those are the things that God values. So there's a sense in which you want to be wealthy, but you want to be wealthy with the intangible assets, not the tangible. What, what tangible assets do you need? Well, it's very simple. You need the tangible assets you need to do what you're called to do. That's how you answer the question, how much is enough? That's a really important question. How much is enough? Whatever it is you need to do what you're called to do, that is enough. So we've got to get very clear on the temptation of the mammon spirit, which is going to work overtime to try to deceive us and distract us and take us away from the purity of obedience to God and into a false idea that we can worship God in money, and we cannot. We do not have the power to do that. There's no way that will ever work. Now, tangible riches can block the fruitfulness of the word in our lives, and one example of this is in the parable of the soil conditions. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, you see this example where one of the seed soil conditions was the seed that's sown among the thorns. And the thorns are those that represent those things that are worries and the deceitfulness of wealth, the things that, that distract us from pure obedience and alignment with God. So those are that's an example of how tangible riches can block the fruitfulness of the word of God in our lives. So we have to be very careful that we always view tangible riches correctly. We have to have tangible riches. We have to pay our bills. We have to do that. God knows that. He created the rules for his universe. But we have to be very cautious knowing that we are very prone to, to start worshiping those tangible resources, and that is, that is sin. That, distra that distracts and detracts from our ability to walk with God. Finally, the love, our love of friendship with money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is out of 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And notice the text does not say that money is the root or a root of all evil. It's all types of evil. And it's not the root, it's a root. So don't, don't get into thinking that money's always the problem. Money is a common problem, but it's not always the problem. And so we've got to be very clear that money is always a symptom of something underneath. What's underneath money, the issue of money, is always bad theology, a bad view of God, a bad understanding, incomplete understanding of the truth of the word of God. So the love of money, friendship with money, and this word here for uh, money is the word love of silver. Uh, in scripture, the common word for money is the word for silver. Uh, you can see the scripture you know, held on to uh, a view of currency that was based on commodities. Uh, today, we have a view of currency that's based on fiat money, which means there's no commodity. There's nothing behind the paper money. It's just paper that a, 
government has declared to be currency. And there are problems with that. There are going to be consequences with that that we are probably going to see probably not too far from now. And you're already seeing some signs of it in Greece and what's going on in Greece even today. All right, so I wish I could spend some time on that, but we are down to about 15 minutes, and I want to uh, get into the five uses of money because this is a uh, this is very practical, a uh, practical model for how to really steward money according to the will and ways of God, and this is a biblical way to answer the question: How much is enough? How much money is it that you really need? Or another way to say it: Who defines your standard of living? Which we've answered that as being. The master defines it, and one of the ways that he will define it is how you properly implement this particular model of the priorities for using money. These are five priorities for the biblical use of money. Now, I'm going to give them in a particular order to you, but please know that the only two, uh, only two of the five am I confident about the order in. I know the first one's got to be the tithe, and I know the last one has to be my personal expenses. The other three in the middle, I don't know. I don't know what Scripture would say. I don't have clarity from Scripture as to exactly the order. So I kind of just view them all pretty equally. So I know this: that before I can consider, you know, my personal expenses, I have to do the other four first. And tithing is the very first thing I want to do. So tithing comes from Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. Many people think tithing was originated in the law. That is not correct. The tithe was actually predated the law. It first appeared when Abraham went and rescued a group of people from uh, their enemy, including his own relatives, and returned the assets and the people back to the kings from which they were stolen. And in the process of his return, he met a man named Melchizedek, which we believe is a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of Christ, and Melchizedek served him bread and wine, which is symbolic of communion with the Father. We now have bread and wine today as a central part of the expression of our unity in Christ. And so this was before Christ died. So this is, a again, a pre-incarnate uh, symbol of Christ and communion with Christ. And so what Abraham did to respond to this gift of communion with Christ was he gave a tithe of what he what he brought back. Interestingly, Abraham kept nothing else. Of all the all the resources he brought back to the kings, he didn't he didn't do take anything for himself. He only paid a tithe to Melchizedek. So this is a great example of tithing and how it, he's acknowledging God's faithfulness and and favor in being able to win the battle and return the people and the resources that had been stolen from these kings. So this is the, the genesis of tithing. Now the concept of tithing is picked up in the law and practice in the law. And many people uh, note that it's not really repeated in the New Testament as if it needed to be repeated for it to be true. Well, that's not true at all because Jesus viewed the scripture in his time as the Old Testament, which was authoritative for him. So if the Old Testament was authoritative for him, then it should be authoritative for us. So the tithe idea is an Old Testament idea that has, has, has not been changed as far as I can tell in the New Testament. It's still valid. It's in force, and we should be practicing this. So this is what I would say is the very first use of money. The first priority with the use of money is to tithe.
The second one I have listed here is giving. I call this sowing and reaping intangible wealth. Because what you're looking for here is you're not looking for a tangible return. You're giving because God has moved in your heart to use money to help some situation be lined up with him. Some person or some group of people have a need and you see and feel burdened to contribute to it and you see how this can improve these people and their alignment with God. So now I think you have the sense of giving, a biblical sense of giving. Now, there are many people that just uh, think you just give to anybody that's poor. I'm not in that camp. Uh, I'm in the camp of giving where I see an opportunity to facilitate alignment. I think if you just give without being spiritually sensitive to what what God is doing with these people, you are more likely going to just embolden and enable their sin and rebellion. I do not see that as wise. I think wisdom is always to give to facilitate alignment with the will and ways of God. And then next is taxes. Mark chapter 12, verse 17 has an interesting statement here. It says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, some people take that and interpret that to mean that where Jesus is talking about a coin uh, and identifying, you know, whose image is on the coin. Well, Caesar's image is on the coin. So they're saying, well, because Caesar's image on the coin, that coin belongs to Caesar, belongs to the world. I do not think that's true at all. I think the proper understanding of this text must be seen in light of Romans 13, where it says there, God ordains all authority, including all civil authority. In Acts 17, it says that God establishes the boundaries and the seasons by which every nation and every ruler exists. And so God sovereignly selects civil authority. So Caesar exists and is operating by divine fiat from God. God has ordained that he exists, and he's also ordained, and we see this in Romans 13 as well, that people pay taxes to support the government. So this is a biblical idea of paying taxes. It is not simply giving Caesar something that belongs to Caesar. No, no, everything belongs to the Lord. All the cattle, all the gold, all the silver, it's all the Lord's. And he's saying, I put Caesar in place, and I have authorized him to tax you to support himself, you pay your taxes. So that's the idea here. And I think it's got to be very clear that we as believers should be very prompt and paying our taxes. Now, we do not have to pay more than what we are obligated to pay, but we need to pay our taxes and we need to pay them joyfully, which I know that can be a big challenge too. We pay them joyfully because we know this is part of alignment with God is properly supporting the government that God has put into place. Even even wicked government, I know that can be hard for us to get. Well, why would God put wicked government in place? Well, God has got a meta-narrative going on. It's very complex. It's got many aspects to it, and it includes using even wicked people. So our job is to be faithful and do what we're called to do, which is steward our resources properly, pay our taxes is one of the ways we do that. The fourth way that, uh, that we properly steward our resources is we save and invest. And in this case, we're sowing and reaping tangible wealth. Now we're looking for a tangible return. Now, I want you to notice I did put this ahead of giving because I think 
giving is about getting an intangible return, and that's always superior a superior return to tangible. So I, that's where I would put sowing and investing, you know, fourth here. So Proverbs 21, 20 says, the wise store up choice food and oil, but fools gup theirs down. And then you have uh, Ecclesiastes 11, 6, sow your seed in the morning at the evening time, let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well which means that God has designed it so we won't fully know if our business plans are going to work. You know, our business plans need to be submitted to him. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 tells us business plans are really efforts to discern the will of God. That's what they should be. Business plans are not, you know, how can I go make a bunch of money? They're about efforts to discern the will of God. And in the process of discerning the will of God, there is provision. So we've got to get very clear on that. And so saving and investing is about making wise choices based on how the spirit leads you into where to, pull, to deploy these resources. And again, for me, I want to deploy my investments aligned with God as best I can. I'm looking to support organizations and people who are seeking to walk in God's will and God's ways to the best of their ability. So the, again, saving and investing, just like giving, is a very spiritual exercise exercise of discernment and prayer. Now, after you've properly utilized your, your resources according to these first four principles, then you have the very last thing, which is your personal needs, your personal expenses. God knows that you need food, clothing, and shelter. He provides for that. But the level at which he chooses to provide is defined by you properly doing the first four uses of money first. You do those first, and then what's left becomes God's indication of your closed circle. How big is your circle? Well, now you have a sense of it right here. He has shown you by you properly stewarding the resources he puts in your hand. So this, is, I think, is how you determine and you sense the will of God for your life and how you steward money. Keep in mind this. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. You can know that when you are lined up with God, there will always be provision. He will take care of you. It may not be the way you want it to be. It may not look the way you want it to look, but it will always be good. And you need to learn to be accepting and grateful, not complaining, but grateful and always knowing that God is good and will do good things in your life. So how do you walk in financial freedom? Well, first, you've got to recognize that you're, you're inundated and you're, you have an inclination to deception, worldly deception, letting the world define success, security, and significance. You cannot do that. That is not biblical thinking. You must fight that. Secondly, you've got to embrace stewardship as the key principle. It's the key to unlocking the reality of how to properly steward and how to use God's money. We are simply stewards. He is the master. He defines everything, including your standard of living, and therefore how much is enough. We must let God do that. This is not your choice. Wealth and riches, we must understand the difference between tangible and intangible assets and recognize that intangible assets have eternal significance, eternal value, Tangible resources are simply a temporal tool that you use here on earth. When you die, you do not take your money with you. But what goes with you is your intangible assets. 
So we must always use money to trade up for the intangible. The tangible for the intangible is always what we're looking for. Money is not something to be worshipped. It is a temporal tool to do the will of God according to the ways of God. It is a tool of sanctification. And certainly it's a tool for valuation and a medium for exchange. It's all of those things. But keep in mind, our propensity will be to try to worship it. And if we're Christians, we'll try to claim we can worship God in money. And that is deception. You cannot. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You will not be able to do that. If you try to do that, you'll be defaulting to money. And finally, the five uses of money, the closed circle. This gives you the answer to how much is enough. It gives you the answer to the standard of living that God wants for you. If you properly order those priorities, you tithe, you give, which is seeking an intangible return. You pay your taxes to those that God has sovereignly put over you to govern you. And then you invest and save where you're seeking now a tangible return on assets. And finally, what's left. Now, that becomes the standard of living that God wants you to embrace and to be thankful for. So may God give us all grace to learn to walk in financial freedom, to walk as real stewards, to walk as faithful, obedient stewards to the will of the master. May his will and his way be on our lips and be our only desire. So may he grant that to us in Jesus' name. Amen.